Well, we'll turn now again to um, Luke 2, and our focus is verses 35, uh, 25 to 35. <clears throat> Luke 2, verses 25 to 35. Now, we don't know a great deal about Simeon. All we know about him is from these verses. And uh, some people say that he was a priest. But the text uh, doesn't say that. So we don't know. Most people assume that he was an old man. One tradition says that he was 113 years old. Uh, but um, his imminent death, I think, may just as easily be explained by uh, sickness as by age. So, really, we don't know a great deal about Simeon. The important thing about Simeon is that um, as a result of him and of his brief appearance on the scene, we know more about Jesus. We learn more about the wonder of the incarnation. We learn more about the mystery of the God-man. And so for that, we're thankful because we want in all things uh, to learn more of Christ. Now, our passage tells us that we need to look at Jesus and Simeon. Verse 25 says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. So we want to look at Simeon and Jesus. Simeon, who was in the temple, and the consolation of Israel was Jesus. So let's look at Simeon first, and let me tell you four things about Simeon. The first being that he was a righteous man. Simeon was a righteous man. We read that in verse 25. So I ask you if you're righteous. Are you a righteous man, a righteous woman, a righteous child? Now, the trouble with this statement is that Paul says, and he's quite adamant about this, that there is no one righteous. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 says, there is none righteous, and in case you didn't understand it, no, not one. There's no one righteous. So, is there a problem here? Well, in fact, it's not really a problem at all, because the assumption is that he is righteous by grace. If anyone in the Bible is righteous, they're righteous by grace. They're righteous because God has done something. They're righteous because God has stepped in and transformed them. God has declared them righteous. We know that this is the way people are saved in the Bible. They're declared righteous. They believe in God. They trust his Savior. And as a result of their faith in the Messiah, they are declared righteous. They're not talking about their uh, inward state. It's not talking about their personal condition, but it's talking about their legal status. This man's a righteous man in the eyes of God. He's a man who, according to verse 25, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. So he was looking with the eyes of faith to the appearing of the Messiah. He was believing in the Messiah. He was trusting in the Savior. And so, as a result, the New Testament makes it clear. He was justified by grace 
through faith in the consolation of Israel. So he was, in other words, a saved man. It's wonderful, then, to be righteous. It's a great thing to have declared of you, you're a righteous man, you're a righteous woman. And so that's why my question to you is so important. Are you a righteous man? Are you a righteous woman and child? Have you been justified? Have you been saved? Having trusted in Christ, have you then been forgiven? And that makes all the difference in the world, you see. Simeon would have been able to sing what we're going to sing to conclude the service. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. I'm a righteous man, he could say. Not because of anything I've done, not because of work I've accomplished, but because, well, Jesus, your blood and righteousness are my beauty and my dress. And as a result of that, he would have been able to also sing, with regard to the last day, with joy shall I lift up my head. I'll not be cowering, I'll not be running for the hills, I'll not be calling on the mountains to hide me from the wrath of the Lamb, but I'll be able to lift up my head with joy because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm saved. Because I'm saved. It's wonderful to know that you're saved. And it's wonderful to know that when you're saved... Even when your sin is exposed, you're still saved. Even when your sin is, is broadcast abroad, when people see something of the darkness that still resides in your heart, you're still righteous. A friend of ours has had his sin broadcast and now everybody knows but he can still sing this he can still sing my sin not in part but the whole of it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more praise the Lord praise the Lord O my soul He's forgiven. They are forgiven. It's wonderful. Because every one of us, at some point or another, people are going to get a glimpse of just how sinful you really are. Some weak moment, you say something, and they see you're still righteous. Oh, you need to deal with that sin, you need to repent. You need to, with vigor now, try to put that sin to death. But before the Lord, in the eyes of God, before the judge of all the earth, you're, you're righteous. You're clothed still in the righteousness of God. So can you say, by grace, I'm righteous? If you can, you're, you're greatly blessed. He was a righteous man. He was a... A devout man. That's the other word that's used of him. Verse 25, he was devout. The word means to take hold of things well. 
to be carefully observant of all the commands of God. That's what uh, Simeon was. He was carefully observant of all the commands of God. And, and when that's you, when you live like that, when you are careful to observe all the commands of God, then you live a very useful life. You live a very helpful life. Those are the kinds of people you want in the church. Those are the people you want around you. They're going to be just wonderfully, uh, a wonderful blessing to God's people. They do good to others and they bring glory to God. These people who are devout, these who are devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, they do good to all around and they bring glory to God above. They will honor God and they will bless people. So what this means then is if, the, if uh, a Simeon was a devout man, that it meant that when he died, and verse 29 suggests that his departure was imminent, suggests that he's about to die, he's going to be uh, dying soon. Lord, you are letting your servant now depart in peace. And when he departed, when they laid him in the ground, uh, they would have shed tears. It is said of the devout men who carried the body of Stephen to his grave that they made a great lamentation over him. Well, when Simeon died, people would have made a great lamentation over him because he was devout. He lived so as to be missed. You miss people when they're gone because they've lived in such a way as was a blessing to people and as glorified God. You and I have known people like that, and many of them have died, and we miss them, and we miss them uh, dearly, and we feel their loss keenly, uh, because they, they were devout, they were a blessing to us, and they glorified God. We miss them. They have lived so as to be missed. Not everyone does. There's a, there's a striking passage in Second Chronicles. Just turn to 2 Chronicles 21 for a moment. 2 Chronicles 21, and beginning at verse 16. 2 Chronicles 21, and verse 16. And the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who are near the Ethiopians, and they came up against Judah and invaded it, and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house, and also his sons and wives, so that no one was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. And after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor, like the fires made for his father's. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he departed to no one's regret. That's horrible. Can you imagine that? They lay you in the ground, and they say, well, good riddance. You depart to no one's regret. How horrific. We don't want to live like that. We want to live devout lives like Simeon. And then in the providence of God and according to his timing and appointment, when the day of our departure comes, they lay us in the ground and surely let there be some lamentation over the loss of someone like you. 
because you were devout. You're like Simeon. And you lived in such a way as to be a blessing to the saints and to your generation and to live for the glory of God. So he was a, he was a devout man. Thirdly, he was a prepared man. He was prepared. He was prepared to die. Are you prepared to die? John Newton, towards the end of his life, he described himself in this way. He said, he said I'm like a person going on a journey on a, a coach or a bus who expects its arrival every hour and is frequently looking out the window for it. I'm ready. The, the, the bus is coming. To use more biblical terms, the chariots are coming. And, and I'm, I'm looking for it. I'm ready to go. I'm ready for the chariots of fire to come and, and take me into the glory. I'm prepared. I'm ready to go. Newton, on another occasion, said this. He said, um, he said that he was packed and sealed and waiting for the post. Just put me in that slot. And I'm gone. I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm prepared. People in this world, they're not prepared to die. Occasionally, Christians are not prepared to die either because, well, perhaps it's lack of faith or one reason or another, and perhaps we need to think more biblically and, and so on and so forth. But, but people in the world, they're not ready to die. And, and we, we want to make sure we are ready to die ourselves. You see verse 29 of our, uh, of our passage, um, Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So God promised that he would see the salvation of God. He would hold the, the child in his arms. He would see the Messiah, and then God would have him depart in peace. So now the moment has come, and he's ready to go. He's, he's prepared for death. He's ready to, to depart in peace. And you and I want to we want to understand death that way, that it's a, a departure in peace. Um, the world in which we live, they, they're not ready for this for obvious reasons. They're not ready for, for death. And in fact, death is something they don't want to think about, and they would rather not deal with it. They would rather not encounter this. And uh, we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that this is exactly the case, that all non-Christians, they are those who through fear of death all their lifetime are subject to bondage. Now, if you lack compassion for unbelievers, just think about that. Think about the fact that all their life they're afraid to die. Every hour of every day, sometimes they can suppress it for a while, sometimes they can, they can hold it down, they can keep it in bounds, but but all the time they're struggling with this, this specter, this fierce reality of death. And they know it's coming. And they can't avoid it. And they don't know what to do about it. And they're terrified. Well, that should make us, they, that should fill us with compassion. They're gripped by terror. You and I, though, how do we think? We say with Paul, we understand what Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that for me to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is something positive. To die is a plus, not a negative. To die is to depart in peace 
To die is to go and be somewhere else, a place that we would rather be than here. Now, why is that? Why is there such a thing for a Christian as departing in peace? Well, it's departing in peace because we know the Lord. That's the case with Simeon. Why can he depart in peace? Well, because he knows the Lord. He knows he's experienced the consolation of Israel. God promised he was going to bring consolation. He was going to bring comfort for Israel. Well, that comfort, that consolation was embodied in the person of Jesus and involved forgiveness, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. So yes, this is a departure in peace because it's all part of an extraordinary and gracious plan. Those who trust in Jesus, those who experience the consolation of Israel. They are the forgiven. They are the redeemed of the Lord. They are those who in this life and especially in the next, they experience true life. In this life, it's abundant life. In the world to come, it's life everlasting in the presence of God. And so, yes, they, they can talk about a departure in peace because they know the Lord. And they can talk about departure in peace because they know the future. Uh, he knows the future. He knows that his death, it isn't just death. I mean, there is a, an ugly element to it. There is the tearing apart of body from soul. It's so unnatural. It's really horrific. But it is a departure. This word departure uh, is used in a number of different ways in the New Testament. It, it means the release of a prisoner. Hmm. That casts a different light on the whole notion of death. It's the release of a prisoner. It, it's used to untie a ship. If you see a ship tied up and, you know, they loose the, the ship from its moorings and off it goes and sails towards its destination. It's a departure. Hmm. It's used to, uh, to refer to the taking down of a tent. It's used like that in 2 Corinthians 5. You, you set up your tent, so you're not really at home, are you? You're, you're in the wilderness or you're on a journey or... Uh, you're an ar a soldier in the army and you're in battle. But then you take down your tent and you, you go home. It's your departure. It's used to unyoke a beast from its burden. Used like that in Matthew 11. And so God is doing these things for the people of God when they die. This is... This death, then, is not something for believers to be afraid of. It's something to be recognized as that which frees us from the burdens of this life. You're no longer on the journey. You're no longer in the wilderness. You're, you're going to be home. You're no longer enslaved or, or chained to certain things in this world. You've been, you've been set free. It, it frees you from the burdens of this life, and it leads you into the glories of the next. This departure is, is not something to be feared for us. I understand why, it, why we fear it. I, I, I understand that. 
But the biblical perspective is that it's asleep. And it's for that reason that men, uh, Christians like Lloyd-Jones, when they came to dying, Lloyd-Jones said to, he said, tell those people, tell those Christians not to pray for my, my recovery. Don't hold me back from the glory. <coughs> it's time now to depart in peace. So yes, he was, a, he was a prepared man. He was ready to die. And lastly, he was a blessed man. He was a blessed man. He was blessed in a variety of ways, two of which I'll highlight. The first is that he saw Jesus. It was a blessing to see Jesus. It must have been a great blessing to hold the baby Jesus in your arms. I wonder if he was nervous. I wonder if he... I wonder if his arms shook. You know, I, I, I've raised children myself, but when some young couple hand me their baby, I, I get all nervous. I think I'm going to drop the baby and something terrible is going to happen. Um, so now here he comes and he knows. I mean, he knows this is no ordinary child. Was he nervous? I wonder. And he looked, and he looked at the baby with the eyes of faith, and he saw that uh, this was God. And I don't know, maybe he knew that Psalm 110 was right there in his arms. The Lord said to my Lord, you know, maybe, maybe he understood that already. I don't know. But he knew there was something, this was God's salvation in his arms. Wise men had worshipped this child. And he would as well. Perhaps you think to yourself as, as you listen to this and as you read that, you say, oh, I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have stood there and said, here, let me hold him. We do that with regular babies. Wouldn't you want to do that with this baby? He saw Jesus. But you know, 1 Peter 1.8 says, talks about Jesus, whom having not seen, you love. So what God has done is he's brought you to the point by grace now that you love the Lord Jesus. You haven't seen him, but you love him. The world around you hates him, but you love him. Your eyes have been opened, the scales have been removed, your ears have been unstopped, your heart's been changed, and you understand how, how glorious he is, and so now you love him. God did that for you, but that's not all. One day you see him with your own eyes. And as surely, as surely as you can see me, as I can see you, your eyes will fall upon Jesus and you will see him as he is. No one will have to explain him to you. You won't have to look for a picture of him. You won't have to say, well, now, can I find a broadcast somewhere? Can we live stream it? No, nope. you will see him with your own eyes. You'll stand before him and you'll gaze upon the risen, glorified Christ. John looked at him and saw him, saw the splendor of Jesus. Read about it in Revelation 1. And John fell at his feet like a dead man. He was so overwhelmed, so struck. You'll be like that. You'll be amazed. You'll say, the half was not told me. I thought I knew something about the glory of Christ. I read a book about the glory of Christ, but the half was not told me. Yeah. 
Well, that's the man Simeon, godly, devout, prepared, and blessed. Well, thank God if those things are true of you. But now the Savior. Thank God we can think about the Savior and learn a few more things about him. And if you know him yourself, thank God. So let me tell you about the Savior. First of all, he, he saves. <laughs> tell you about Jesus. He saves. They shall call his name Jesus. Matthew 121, uh, he shall save his people from their sins. That's why they called him Jesus. And that was the heart and soul of the consolation that uh, Simeon was looking for. That's the heart and soul of this comfort. Any comfort of that, that's worthy of the name, any comfort of real substance and significance, must deal with the issue that we have. What's the issue that we have? Well, look, there are all kinds of diseases in the world, all kinds of things that are going to kill you. But there is a killer disease that the Bible talks about. When you start to parse that, that disease, parse that out, you begin to see this is horrific. The Bible talks about sin, and it's a disease that has spread to everybody. Everybody. In the history of mankind, there's been one person who wasn't touched by sin. One person in whom this killing, fatal disease didn't have its way. Just one out of the millions and billions. There's seven billion people in the world today. Seven billion. I can't even conceive of how big a number that is. And every single one of them. Sinner. This is the disease that is spread to everybody. It is always, it is always fatal. In every single case, it'll kill you. There is no cure for it. No human being could ever possibly come up with a cure for it. They can throw billions of dollars at it, research all over the nation. They'll never come up with a cure. It carries with it this disease. It carries with it unspeakable suffering. When you, when you uh, see the news and you see what's going on in Ukraine, when you walk through a hospital and you see little children dying, when you walk through a nursing home and see people near the end of their life and what a sin-ravaged life has done to them, And you see something of the suffering that sin brings. One of, the, one of the difficulties of living for any extended period of time is you begin to see how much suffering there is in the world. I mean, when I was saved at 17 years old, it's like, yeah, yeah, I know there's suffering. <laughs> I know the problem of suffering, and here's, here's the biblical answer to it. And 
And it's all reasonably simple. But as you go through life, you know, you see people suffer in horrific ways. This disease brings and carries with it incredible suffering. But then, in the next world, the suffering that sin brings in this world doesn't hold a candle to the suffering that will be experienced by those who have not been saved from sin. To be honest with you, I can't, I'm sure the same is true for you, I can't think about hell for any great length of time. I remember Al Martin, Pastor Al Martin, doing a series on the doctrine of hell, and he said that every now and then he had to just turn away, had to just stop, had to stop researching, had to stop reading. I don't even know if I could do a series on it. You know, I can't think about it a great deal. It is, it is, it is standing on the edge of the cliff and looking over into the pit. And it is unbearable. It's what sin does. So, when he holds in his arms the consolation of Israel, it is thrilling. Because here is the Savior. I have seen your salvation. I've seen, I've held in my hands the one who's going to save us from this. Nah, what a powerful moment that must have been. And not only is this for us, the consolation of Israel, but he knows that this is for everyone else as well. Because we read in verse 32, he's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is the Savior of the world. This is not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles as well. It's, it's not just for us, this little tribe. It's for all the tribes and all the nations of the world. This is astounding for Simeon to hold in his arms, the Savior of the world. And so it's astounding for us to, well, we don't hold him in our arms, but we have him, we have him, and we offer him to the world. We, you've got the best message to give to the world that anybody has. You hold up to them a savior, savior from sin and all the suffering that sin brings. So you talk to a troubled person. You talk, talk to someone who's, who's in the grip of guilt. You talk to someone who's just life, whose life is just shattered because of sin. And you say, I have the answer for you. I know the only one who can save you. What a delight to be able to do that. In this dark, sin-sick world, we have the answers. So, he's the Savior. That's who he is. Secondly, he rules. So he saves and, and he rules. And you and I probably feel from time to time, sometimes more than others, that this world is out of control. There just doesn't seem to be anybody at the wheel. This train is rocketing down the tracks, and there's no one, there's no one controlling it. There's no steady hand on the tiller. It's all craziness. But it's not true. And right throughout chapter 1, and right throughout chapter 2, and frankly throughout the Bible, but really as we're reading through this, you find that this is not random. These aren't things just happening willy-nilly. There's someone in control here.
It's all happening according to a plan. You see verse 26, for instance. So in verse 26, it had been revealed to him. So somebody told him years ago that this is what's going to happen. That only can be done. You only have prophecy when somebody's in control. And God said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to see my, my salvation, and then you'll die. God's in control. Verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple when the parents brought the child Jesus to do, to do for him according to the custom of the law. So wasn't that lucky? Because, I mean, otherwise you would have missed him. Well, it wasn't lucky at all. It was what we call providence. And it's what we call the sovereignty of God. And he just happened to be there at exactly the time that they brought the baby in. And they just happened. The temple's big. I mean, it was impressive. The disciples said to Jesus, Oh, look at the temple. That's, that's monumental. That's a big place. So how did they happen to meet each other in the big temple? Well, <laughs> There's a sovereign God at work here. God's in control. Verse 29, uh, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So all of this is happening according to your word, according to prophecy. Um, in addition to that, all of these things are happening because God has controlled history so that now in the fullness of time, his, uh, his Savior has come. And now... Uh, Simeon says, you are letting your servant depart in peace. This is the moment of his death. It's at the moment of death that we all feel so helpless. I'm sure you've been around when someone you love has died and, and you have no control. You can't stop it. And no matter how much you want to, you can't. And you know at that moment that Death is appointed. And you know what Hebrews says, that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. And who does the appointing? God does the appointing. So when Simeon dies at precisely the moment that the Bible talks about here, it's because of God's appointing. So who's in control? God's in control. Not Simeon, and not Joseph, and not Mary. God is in control. So again, and again, and again, and again, and you can carry this right through to the end of the Gospels where Jesus dies. And, and there again, prophecies are fulfilled. And it all happens so that the scripture might be fulfilled. So who's in control? God's in control. And we take this truth and we carry it into the week ahead of us. And when things seem just ludicrous, when things happen in your life that are confounding, and you say, well, the Lord's in control. This is not random. With God, things don't just happen. He's in control, and he's brought it to pass. And so you can trust him, right? I mean, you can, you can know that, that he has ordained everything, and it's for a, a gracious purpose. God's in control. So um, he rules. He saves. Thirdly, he divides. He divides. Look at verses 33 and following. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the, the fall and the rise of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that uh, thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Jesus will divide. 
Some are going to be for him and some are going to be against him and, and some will speak against the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that very well. And everything will depend on your relationship to him. This child is destined for the fall and the rising of many. So, depending on your relationship to Jesus, you will either fall or rise. Depending on your relationship to Jesus, you will either fall or rise. You may fall. Look at Revelation 18. Let me, let me read to you about the fall of Babylon. Babylon is, is man opposed to God. It's, it's unbelievers fighting against God. They're doing it in the world all the time. Some of them are persecuting. In Eritrea, we read about Eritrea in our bulletin. There are people, that's Babylon there attacking the church. You read about China. You read about um, certain countries. And... That's Babylon attacking the church. What's going to happen to them? Are they going to fall? Revelation 18. Let me read a lengthy section. Verse 1, Revelation 18. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard a voice, another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you partake of her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds, and mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And so you can be the ruler of a nation, and you can invade another nation, and you can bring devastation upon an innocent people, and God will judge you. And you may think no one can touch you, but he'll put you in the ground. Well, they dismiss things like this, but it'll happen. Babylon will fall. And then look at verse 21 and following. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be no more. What's it going to be like in all these great nations where all these wicked people run things and, and run rampant over uh, those who are innocent and, and give vent to all of their wickedness? What will their lives be like? The sound of harpists and musicians, the sound of the flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you 
no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who had been slain on the earth. And, and uh, yeah, they rejoice now. They think everything's going fine and swimmingly now. But God will bring them down. And God will devastate them. You're outside of Christ, that's what will happen to you. You will fall. From whatever height you think you've risen to, God will bring you down. But there's a rising. If you're outside of Christ, you will fall. But there's a rising as well. You, you'll rise. You'll rise from your grave. The grave that you lay in, it's a grave dug by your sin. I mean, your sin dug this grave, and you were placed in it. You were ready for eternity, separated from God. But you rise from the grave. You rise from that grave dug by your sin. You, you rise from the pit into which you were cast because of your sin. And you rise from the grave into glory because of Jesus, because you're in a right relationship with Jesus. Without him, it's devastation forever. With him, it's glory, world without end. Depending on your relationship with him, you rise or you fall. Jesus divide. And there's only two kinds of people in the world, those who who fall because of their sin and those who rise because of the Savior. He divides. And then he dies. He dies. This is how he saves. You see verse, verse 35 says, uh, Simeon speaking to Mary, and he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And, and he dies. Roman soldiers had, uh, had at least two weapons. If you're a Roman soldier, you have at least two weapons. You have, you have one small and useful dagger, maybe for, for hand-to-hand combat, some infighting, like, but just a, a small dagger that's useful, and maybe you used it even as you were setting up tents and so on and so forth. But then they also had a larger sword, a broad sword, and this one is designed to inflict maximum damage. This will ruin your enemy in combat. So that's the sword that uh, Simeon says. You're going to experience that, Mary. A sword's going to pierce you. It won't be a scratch. It'll be a sword that will do maximum damage to you. So what we see here, we see Mary's grief. It's difficult to see children suffer. It's difficult to see your own child suffer. That's one of the worst things in the world, isn't it? See your own children suffer. I cannot imagine what it was like for her to look up and see her son crucified. Can't imagine. 
don't know what that's like, would not want to know what that's like. Mary's grief. But then there's Jesus' grief. Jesus' grief. And his grief was not... I mean, watching your son die by crucifixion is almost unimaginable. But that is nothing compared to his grief. There's a, there's a hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. The last stanza says this, Here might I stay and sing no story so divine. Never was love, dear king, never was grief like thine. Never, never, never. Walk, walk through Auschwitz and Buchenwald and, and look closely at the reality of the Holocaust. Walk through Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Walk through certain hospital wards. Never, 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 never was there grief like thine. Because this was, this was propitiation. This was wrath-bearing. That's why there's nothing like it. This was bearing your wrath, the wrath you deserve forever. He bore that. Many bore my wrath as well. And he bore the wrath of everyone in this room who's a believer. And then he bore the wrath of all his people in the world today. And then he bore the wrath of a multitude that no man can number. He bore the wrath of his people. And is made to cry out, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences hell. He experiences forsakenness. And to save you, there's that sword. And the father turns his face away. Yeah. So he dies. The word dies must never fall easily from our lips. You never talk lightly about the death of Christ. You never deal with it in a nonchalant way. Never dismissive. Never light. It is always, always, always profound. He dies. And then he returns. Ah, he returns. When, um, when my grandchildren are coming over to the house, um, I'm sure many can relate to this, I find myself looking out the window a lot. You know. And then about you know, a minute and a half later, uh, you, you know, you get impatient, right? And then, and then at some point, somebody says, uh, they're here. And you know, you, you, you know who's here. It's, uh, it's the children and whoever drove them. <laughs> Their parents probably drove them. Yeah. So, verse 25. Verse 25 says this. He was waiting. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, that's quite a beautiful word. It means to receive favorably. To receive favorably. It means to, to receive to oneself. To receive to oneself. And it means something like this. It really does relate to 
having people arrive at your door that you've really been waiting for. Because, I mean, you open the door, but you don't just open the door, you open your arms. No, you, you open the door and say, good to see you. you, and you hug them, you give them a, a Richard Valade hug. I, I, you know, Richard's coming, by the way, I think at the end of this month, and he's coming to preach. So that'll be great. So I, I've told you before, when Richard hugs you, he gets the, the, the U.S. Marine arm, gets it around your, I don't know how he does it, because he's short, and so, but I guess I'm the same height. So, it, so he, he gets his arm around you like that, and gets your, your neck right in here. And it's like, oh, God, good to see you. It's like that. It's like, and, uh, you know, it's, it's actually very endearing. <laughs> a little painful, but it's, it's sweet. But that's the idea. You receive them to yourself. It's not just that you're happy to be, for them to be in the house, but you're happy for them to be with you. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting to hold the child. Philippians 3.21 says, We eagerly wait for the Savior. We do what he did. See, he was waiting for the first coming. We're waiting for the second. And, and Paul strengthens the word. He says, you know, you're not just waiting. Ah, you're you're eagerly waiting. I mean, you're excited about this. You can't wait. There's a passion in your look. There's an eagerness and an expectation in your eye. And you want him to come so very badly. And perhaps you think, well, that that was a great privilege. He waited And then he held him. But your privilege will exceed that. You're waiting now, I hope. And you're waiting with expectation. And you're waiting with eagerness. And one day, you'll see him. And you will receive him to yourself. And more importantly, He will receive you to himself. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank you that we are people who are so extraordinarily privileged. We are the objects of amazing grace. And we are those now clothed in the righteousness of Christ, objectively, legally righteous, And one day we, when we see him, shall be like him, perfect and holy. Help us to spread this wonderful gospel so that others might taste the blessings we have tasted. Help us in Jesus' name.